Hello and welcome to another episode of Oconus, the Contractor's Life, an unscripted, free-flowing discussion of the experiences of private security contractors from the perspective of private security contractors. From Washington State, I'm your host, Scott Dresser. My guest for this episode is Dave Williams. Uh, without further ado and mudding anything up, Dave, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much, Scott. Uh, super happy to be on. Well, I'm delighted to have you here. Uh, so for the folks that are listening, can you uh, give um, a brief or as much detail as you want, uh, your background, your history, that period of your life prior to getting into uh, private contracting? Absolutely. Um, I'll start off just briefly by uh, touching on my childhood. I grew up in South Florida in, uh, in, my, in the my, greater Miami area. Um, I joined the Marine Corps like a lot of other guys did, uh, you know, after a failed attempt at normal life. I tried to do a year of college, and uh, I was 18 going on 12, so uh, I, I knew I needed something. I was going to work at Taco Bell. Um, joined the Marine Corps. went to Paris Island, South Carolina for boot camp. I was in 1st Battalion Bravo Company and uh, graduated boot camp at 19 years old. I was on an open contract and uh, and actually was – a, a uh, supply MOS was chosen for me. So uh, I got through the Marine Corps pretty unhinged, no war, nothing exciting. I was attached to a recon unit for, for a little bit. I was part of 31st Mew in Okinawa, 97, 19, 19, 1997, 1998. Uh, kind of like ship life. So, you know, we will, uh, you know, th- that'll come into play here later on. But, um, Discharged honorably from the Marine Corps in 1999 and went straight to college. Went to uh, the Florida State University and uh, graduated in 2002 with an international business and global business degree. And then, you know, then the big, then the big kahuna. You know, it's 2002. I'm a, I'm a four-year Marine Corps vet. I'm a college graduate, and I have no idea what I want to do with my life. Here. Um. So, I, you know, I did what most other people do. I went back to my home of record, South Miami, Florida, and um, I got on with a company called Diplomatic Protection, uh, just kind of doing executive protection for celebrities and, you know, and big money people that kind of came in and out of South Florida. Um, that, you know, that got old. Uh, you know, I think I did it for about a year and a half and decided I was going to make a career in firefighting. So I went through fire school and I went through EMT school. And right before I went through paramedic school, Hurricane Katrina crushed New Orleans. So now we're in 2005. And I got a call from uh, an old buddy of mine. And uh, he asked me if I've ever heard of a company called Blackwater. I told him I hadn't. You know, when I got out of the Marine Corps, and I wasn't any kind of high-speed units or anything in the Corps. Um, and then I went to college and I did what most college people do you know you know i studied and i graduated and i drank a lot and fooled around so i mean in in no way shape or form was i you know in the tactical industry at this point and uh so when he explained to me what blackwater did i said okay well i'm a little rusty but sounds good to me (laughs) so i uh i I abandoned paramedic school and went up to uh new orleans and uh and started working for black uh for blackwater we were securing the uh the government uh, officials that were checking the levee breaches, and we were uh, starting to get into some uh, some FEMA 
protection, some uh, some federal building protection. And the man named uh, Don Maloyevich uh, kind of went. He was working for Blackwater at the time. He he kind of went behind Blackwater's back and created a company called Blackhawk Protection Service. And this is kind of a, a cutthroat industry, which you know I didn't know at the time, but I know now. <laughs> and um, offered me a job to be the director of operations for Blackhawk. Uh, offered me fifteen hundred dollars a week. You know, I was still a young guy. It was good, good money. You know, it was tax free, and I was going to basically run his operations while he lived in Georgia. And he would come, you know, he'd come by, you know, once a month or so. But I was to basically give him the daily reports on what's going on and how all the posts are being handled. We had a lot of former Blackwater guys working for us, uh, and basically the idea was Blackhawk had some longevity to it, where you know Blackwater's bill rates aren't really sustainable for most places. So after, after some months or, you know, even a couple of years, in some cases, Blackwater companies like that usually get run out for, for smaller fish that, you know, can kind of sustain and, and, and decide to be local. So Blackwater stayed. Don Maloyevich made a lot of money. Black, Black Hawk grew exponentially. You can imagine uh, we got up to 70, 80 guys. A lot of us were, former Marine, you know, a couple SEALs, a couple Green Beret. I mean, some, some pretty high-speed stuff going on. The bill rates weren't matching. You know, everybody was making 20 to 25 bucks an hour after Blackwater left. So, you know, hmm. there was a lot of uh, in and out. And I got impatient with uh, Don Maloyevich keeping me at a uh, at X rate when, you know, I probably deserved a Y rate for, uh, for bringing in more business. And so in 2009, I left Blackhawk and Don Maloyevich. And Took a job with EODT, Explosive Ordnance Disposal Technology. They're out of Lenore City, Tennessee. And uh, the contract was to go to Iraq and train Ugandans and help Ugandans sustain FOBs, you know, uh, all over all over the country. Hmm. So in the middle of 2009, I, I did that, took that contract. It was about $100,000 a year contract back then. And uh, I think the rotations were 120 days in country with 30 days home. 30 Days Home was unpaid. That's where I met Greg Hesh and a couple of the other guys that Scott knows of. And uh, a year over there in Iraq, um, a lot of the guys stayed after. I got a lucrative offer in 2010 to move to Jamaica and run a run kind of a three-headed dragon in Jamaica, basically protecting two CEOs that were going to run a distribution center and to kind of organize and run a Jamaican security company that was in the logistic warehouse that the, my two CEOs were running. Uh, the money was good, was some more six-figure money, all tax-free. It was an American company that came to Jamaica and opened up a subsidiary called TLW Jamaica. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, every, everything was great. I guess the only catch is my wife was pregnant with her first child, with our first child. <laughs> and... uh and so, you know, things start to get sticky. So we uh, we have baby number one. Uh, and, you know, I'm starting to think, you know, more and more of trying to find a normal job, even though I'm not really that normal. So. <laughs> I don't think anybody in our industry is after a time, right? <laughs> yes, yeah, sir. I believe you're right. <laughs> now, well, back when I was working for Blackwater, um, I made a good contact. Um, I'll keep his name out of it for now. Just he's a big money guy, but um, he's out of Colorado and owned owned a lot of logistic warehouses throughout the United States 
Um, he now lives in Boca Raton and still has a couple places here in Colorado. But um, him and I met while I worked for Blackwater. He flew me to Colorado, and I protected him for 11 days, waiting for you know the the mob to come get him, which never came. Mm. And uh, during my 11 days in Colorado, I fell in love with this state. I just love the mountains and the peace. And a little bit before you know the marijuana industry kind of jumped in, and and then a million people kind of followed in with it. It was a uh, a nice quiet place and a uh, good place to raise a family and I knew I wanted to be a family guy. So, um so you know, during my time in Iraq and during my time in Jamaica, I, I don't have any bad habits. I don't I don't really drink much alcohol. I don't, I've never touched any tobacco products or hmm. mess with any drugs or anything. So, any money I usually made, I, I I ended up saving quite a bit of it. And I was able to successfully move my family to Colorado in 2012, leaving Louisiana, our home base, you know, from the Blackwater days. And uh, we moved over to Colorado and I bought five acres in Uray, Colorado, which is right outside of Telluride. Huh. Beautiful, beautiful place. I, uh, I was now running counter piracy operations for a company called Nexus Consulting Group and uh, making good coin. I mean, back in the 2011 2012 stuff when I was doing this, uh, you know, getting started on this, it was 800 a grand a day. I mean, it was, you know, the kind of paychecks everybody in our industry really looks for and, and likes. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what I mean? But, yeah. Uh, as as time goes, 2011 and 2012 and 13 pass, you know, uh, everybody's looking for shortcuts. The, the U.S. and foreign flag vessel companies that had contracts with Nexus were trying to, you know, trying to curb – you know, instead of giving Nexus 60 grand for the same route, they want to give them 40 grand. And so Nexus then tries to find cheaper operatives. So, mm. you know, I'm getting those emails. Hey, Dave, instead of making 800 a day, you know, how's 500 a day? How's 550? What's the minimum, you know, you're willing to work for? Mm. Um, do you mind instead of working with two other Marines, do you mind being a team leader for two Indian commandos? You know, mm. we're going to ship them straight from India. So, you know, I, my answer was usually yes to all of that stuff. Uh, I felt pretty confident in the mission to be able to, you know, have that higher ground with good solid weapon systems and good radars on these ships to uh, to engage pirates. Our rules of engagement were a little tricky out there. It was if we saw pirates, you know, getting released out of a mother vessel with a skip, which, you know, happened all the time. I did over 20 runs successfully. Hmm. Uh, these uh, these, you know, these little skips would head towards us and captain would talk to the team leader that you know after after a couple runs was me and uh would let me know uh you know what his thinking was usually he'd want my team to come up to the deck and uh and hold up our weapons over our head kind of showing the pirates that we do have weapons if they continue to come towards us with rope ladders and that kind of stuff then we would uh shoot near their skiff and uh you know if that didn't scare them now we've shown them we have weapons and now we show them we have ammo Thirdly, we would shoot their engine blocks out of their out of their little skiffs. That happened, hmm. and uh, and then lastly would be in a full engagement. You know, I guess killing pirates. Um, that never happened. So hmm. usually we would have to just show them the weapons, or we'd shoot near their skiff, and they'd all go away. <laughs> that's that's typically the way it is, isn't it, with the bad guys? Uh, yes, sir. And the <laughs> dynamic. What I learned later, and I don't know how accurate it is, but I've regurgitated it for nine years like it's a fact. Um, 
China and Japan, I guess, just overfish all those waters, and, mm. you know, places like Somalia and Djibouti and these 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 coastal countries uh, don't have much of a government. And, you know, even if they do have a government in place, they're pretty hip for a bribe, you know, from the uh, from the big money guys like Japan and China. So uh, these guys overfish their waters. And that is really the only thing you can do out there to, to make money as a, you know, as a villager, a Somalian villager, a, you know, a Djibouti guy, you know, you're, uh, huh. you're, you're fishing for a living. And so when you go out there and you catch no fish and then you see a 450 foot, foot skiff and you know that taking over that skiff would yield you 40 or $50 million, then you are going to be the hero for generations to come for your village. So, okay. Kind of a cat and mouse, you know, so it's a cat and mouse game. So they see these big skiffs, they have a, or they see, you know, these big boats that we're on, these U.S. and foreign flag vessels. They usually go about 15, 16 knots. They got skiffs that go 20. So they rev up that engine. They rip towards us. And as soon as they see that we have weapons and we intend to use them, they go away. That's, hmm. that's kind of the nature. They're hoping we're not on there so they can throw rope ladders and take over the ship like you saw in that movie, Captain Phillips. Right. Okay. So that's, that's a that, – now there's a good one. From your perspective, your experience doing anti-piracy work for the time you did, how accurate was that movie as as a whole? I mean, yeah, I mean, I would say it wasn't horribly inaccurate. I'd have to rewatch it again. I haven't seen it in a couple of years, but that is, I mean, you know, that is the diagnosis of of a you know an American mindset without a security team. You know, hmm. they're thinking of everything. Hey, let's we're going to steer. We're going to shoot the water hoses. Those are like the first echelon things that that these ships do and then you know they've gotten wise over the last couple of years and they've taken on security teams but um to this day as far as my knowledge is concerned and i'm still i still kind of try to keep a, a thumb on the on the maritime stuff uh no pirate team has ever successfully been able to board a u.s or foreign flag vessel that has an armed security team in place hmm. and that makes a lot of sense um, just because, yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, the, you know, we're just so favorable. Like right now, right. I talk to you from my deck at Evergreen, and I'm 40 feet in the air. I live on a mountain, and I'm looking down. And if I had a gun on me, and somebody was down there, but instead of just being on flat mountain, they're on a rocking Indian Ocean, going back and forth, pretty hard to the right and left, and trying <laughs> to engage me. They're going to have a hard time. Right. Not only do you have the advantage of height. <laughs> You're probably better trained. <laughs> better trained, more stability. Right? right. You know, my feet aren't bouncing left and right so hard. I got a metal wall that covers three quarters of my body. Yeah, it's right. basically impossible for them to win. Okay. Wow. Uh, that's uh, so now anti-piracy. Uh, that that's that's probably been around a lot longer than when for people when it first became a thing. Uh, I think the first time I started hearing about it. Uh, was somewhere between 2007 and nine, and then we heard about it a lot in 10 and 11. Um, yeah. Has to to your knowledge, has uh, the the industry as a whole, anti-piracy security teams, has it grown? Because it, it seemed to grow rather dramatically there for a time, and then you stopped hearing about it, almost as if they didn't. You know, can, can you speak to that? What's going on, or or how that shook out? Yeah, I think, you know, what happened, and I kind of, you know, through just my family growing, so we'll, you know, we'll fast forward to 2000, the end of 2014, 
at this point now, I have two daughters with a third one in the belly. <laughs> and, uh, oh. of course, three, three daughters total because I'm a Marine, so I have to make those. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, I mean, in 2014, when I left at the tail end of November 2014, I was running with nothing but Indian, you know, commandos and pay rates. I was I was scratching and clawing to hold on to 500 a day, hmm. and I think it was 250 when we weren't on a vessel that was moving. If we we're on an anchored vessel or if we we're in a hotel, we're making 250 a day, which is less than a you know a day as a policeman or even even a good static job here in the U.S. Hmm. Um, so the money started getting thinner. Um, I know there was more Brits, Sri Lankans, Indians that started getting involved. And because they live so much closer and it's such a less of a hassle for them with the flights and the whole nine yards, they can go in and out of their countries. They're willing to, you know, take less money. Even the Brits, which, you know, it's not, it's not cheap to live in London or anywhere in the UK, really. But, I mean, the Brits will work for 250, 300 pounds a day, hmm. just, you know, staying close to home. And most Americans at least logical ones that aren't running off of ego and just running to really support a family. You know, I would say for that job, you, you know, you need $500 a day. Cause if you're not going to get that, you might as well sell cars or do something over here for threes, you know? Right. Okay. Okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I know there was a time when a lot of guys were looking at that and, uh, where, it, and if you had some experience and you, and you had a good network, if that's what you really wanted to do, you could get into it. Because um, I know a couple guys here, even locally. By locally, I mean in my state, uh, that that did that. And uh, I was anyway. Um, so you did that. Now you did anti-piracy work for the Nexus Consultancy Group, and that was for how you did that for how long again? Yeah, Nexus Consulting Group for uh, for a month shy of four years, and I also worked for a company called Meridian Global out of Alabama for my first two runs, and then I kind of hopped from Meridian to Nexus because Nexus hired Meridian as a subcontractor. So I just skipped Peter to get paid by Paul, if that makes sense. Yep, it does. Yeah. Um, kind of did the same thing on land <laughs> you know, right. sometimes. Um, so, okay, so you got roughly four years of experience doing anti-piracy, uh, what a lot of us would consider, you know, you're right on the sweet spot. Um, you know, I mean, it's not – you know, you haven't been there so long that, you know, you become a, a grumpy stodgy, <laughs> but you're not starry-eyed either. Um, so compared to your experiences doing the doing the groundwork, you know, where, you, where most people think private security, because what you were doing was a private security contract, correct? Correct. Okay. So how, if you can, articulate the operational differences or the emotional differences, whatever the differences were between working on the water, anti-piracy, and working on the ground with, say, TLW or Blackhawk or Blackwater? Yeah, no, it's a great question, Scott. Yeah, I think I have a pretty good answer. I would say, first and foremost, the piracy um, is, is a little more controllable with how long you're out there. So the the shortest I was out there, I mean, I flew out there once to Muscat, Oman, and spent six days sailing a uh, Russian vessel to Colombo, Sri Lanka. We dropped off the goods. The There wasn't another run in sight. So instead of the owner shacking us up in a Sri Lankan hotel, he flew us home. Hmm. So after six days, I was home. Wow. Um, I also stayed out there 42 to 45 days. 
uh, for one run and then connected to another one and probably stayed out a total of 90 days. Hmm. And I can't, I controlled that. It's not contractual. Like when you sign something with the ODP or Blackwater, yes, I agree to do one year with you. Yes, I agree to rotate every 120 days, that kind of thing. This, hmm. is, this is more, yes, Kevin Daughtry, owner of Nexus, I agree to make this run as the team leader with the team, you know, Barring in mind any emergencies that are going to happen in the U.S. while I'm gone, I'll try to stay out for a couple of runs. But hmm. if my daughter cuts off her toe while I'm in Oman, I'm probably going to want to fly home pretty soon. <laughs> so first of all, yeah, I would I would say Mar- Maritime gave you a lot more flexibility. Hmm. Okay. Um, I would say a negative to Maritime for some people who you know don't have a Marine or, or a Navy background. Or just haven't been on ships. Like I said, I grew up in Miami, Florida, so I've been on boats and ships most of my life. I'm pretty comfortable with them. I don't get seasick. I don't. I don't scoff at fish heads and rice on a Philippine vessel for 24 days. No problem. Mm. You know, that's that's all easy cheesy for me. But for the American that's from like uh, Kansas or Nebraska, and he's you know eats a hamburger every night, and you know hasn't traveled much, and you know, <laughs> and hasn't been on a a ship when uh, when the weather is pushing it hard left and hard right and you're rocking it looks like you're gonna sink. Yeah. And then the, the the captain calls you in for dinner and it's fish heads and rice. And you know <laughs> you may want to you may want to rethink uh you know you may want to rethink your life choices or bring some protein. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Right? Okay. Um you know and, and you know, I gotta say the the vision that came to mind um, and not to put a plug out there for our TV show, but, uh, uh, you know, that, that fishing show out there in the, uh, you know, the, not the Bering Sea, but, uh, not the greatest catch, but anyway, those guys that come out of Seattle, uh, deadliest catch. There we go. I watch that sometimes. I, and I think, wow, man. And I remember my time on ships in the Marines and I know what you're saying. Now, fortunately, mine never got that bad because I was in the Pacific. <laughs> Okay. okay, I'm just saying. So I, whatever, yeah. uh, but I, I can only imagine. And, uh, you know, and I say this a little, I'm a little blush face when I say this, but uh, I, I got a, and maybe just because my time in the Marine Corps, but I am, I got a, I call it a naturally healthy fear of open waters. <laughs> uh, yes, sir. <laughs> so I'm just saying, um I, I know what you're saying. So for people that don't understand it and that are thinking about what you did, um, they should probably seriously consider what you're talking about. It's it's uh, now on the big ships, you you don't you don't get seasick quite as easy as you do on the smaller boats, right? Correct. That is correct. Even though the Indian Ocean, I would say it. You know, and I was like you. I was on the Pacific in the Marine Corps with 31st Mew, and. Uh, I don't remember getting bumped around too much on USS Bella Wood, which is now a reef in the, you know, in uh, outside of San Diego. But the Indian Ocean seemed to me like a different animal. I don't know if it's because I caught some storms, but it just seemed like it was always real dark, choppy water. Hmm. The kind of water that you would not want to fall into. Hmm. Now, did you enjoy – now, I got to ask, because there's probably some people asking themselves, too. Did you enjoy your time doing anti-piracy security work? I can tell you that I'm 44 years old, and I've never enjoyed anything more. It was the greatest job I've ever had in my life. I wish I could have sustained it. I had it all worked out where, you know, I got a really supportive, awesome wife. She's from Argentina. 
you know, grew up in, a, in the U.S., so she's Americanized, but very, very supportive. I, mm. I came home one day after my seventh or eighth run. I said, listen up. I got it worked out. I'm going to go two months overseas, you know, doing these, you know, g- just ship hopping, and then I'll be two months home. I'll mm. be working six months a year, and I'm making 200 grand. What do you think? <laughs> but it never quite works out that way. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it does for some guys, but – I never experienced it that easy. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay. Oh man. Okay. So, uh, so, but your, so your, your beginnings in private security started, you said, with Blackwater during the Hurricane Katrina. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, diplomatic protection in South Florida for a year and a half, but then yeah. Okay. Any okay. Kind of travel. Yeah, happened when I when I went to Louisiana with Blackwater. I was with Blackwater for a short time before transitioning to Black Hawk. Okay, so for the people that are listening that that maybe know have heard of Hurricane Katrina, that started. Um, can you tell them what year that started, or at least when yeah, you worked there? That was, yep, that was August two thousand five. So I was on the ground maybe three days after, you know, the end of the hurricane, and uh, that was August oh five. Blackwater, you know, had their fangs all over it. Uh, so did a couple local companies and. Uh, and yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, even in 2009, when I finally left Louisiana for Iraq, um, things were still not the same in New Orleans. I mean, there was still a rebuilding process going on. Right now, some say there's it still is. Um, now there's a you know, and there's been a lot written and a lot talked about uh, Hurricane Katrina, and 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 uh, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole because that, I I don't want to, but from a security standpoint, from from a human experience standpoint, you know, from on the ground, what what was it like? How how did it compare to other forms of security you've done? There was a uh, yeah, there was almost uh, man, I don't want to say impending doom, but it was a dark it was dark skies and uh, and it felt like you know it felt like martial law I and mean, it felt like hmm. anything could happen, you know. Rules of engagement were real tricky. We had special officer badges granted by downtown New Orleans, basically letting us, you know, kind of do a little bit more than a normal citizen would be able to do. Maybe not quite police powers, but certainly the ability to probably zip tie somebody if there was a felony in progress or something. Hmm. Um, it, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was nothing that I can compare it to. It was a lot different than Iraq and a lot different than, you know, kind of what I'm doing now. It was uh, it was its own it was its own little thing and uh, yeah it's a, it was a, it was a good experience it it, it definitely uh, definitely put a little mileage on you quick if you uh, if you didn't have a lot of experience you know which I didn't get I didn't gain a lot of experience in the Marine Corps I kind of missed the war on both sides and kind of uh you know my highest speed thing was the 31st Mew bouncing around on the ship for four months <laughs> yeah so, uh, so now. Um... So Blackwater was probably, well, they weren't the only security company operating in Louisiana, uh, in, in New Orleans during that. But they were certainly Correct. the ones that took the lion's share of the, lion's share of the press coverage, um, uh, and probably, at least for a time, had maybe more guys on the ground. Um, but from what I, and maybe you can hearken on this, from what I've heard, some guys have likened it to almost like a uh, a, uh, a coalition, a coalesce of 
of disaster area and war zone. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that's uh that's that's probably a pretty good analogy. I could I'll tell you this, if we had that same same thing going over to Portland right now, we'd probably straighten up that street pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, don't we wish? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, we'll leave it at that, but okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, yep. Okay. And you so, can you can sign me up for a team leader on one of those gigs. <laughs> uh, I'd be right there with you, brother. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, okay. So you now how long? No, you were in what we call NOLA, the New Orleans, Louisiana, because everybody called it NOLA, or if they didn't yep. call it Katrina. So how long were you there? Well, I lived there from 2005 to uh, when I finally moved to Colorado it was 2012. So I lived there seven years. I operated for Blackwater for a couple of those, and then was the director of uh, Blackhawk for for a couple more. So uh, I was operating in, in in Louisiana for four or five years, and yeah, lived there seven. Wow. Okay. Um, so you so you got to see quite a bit while you were there. You you got to see the good and the bad and the ugly there. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, my wife was a general manager of a, a bar and restaurant in the French Quarter. And because I was, you know, very seldomly home, always kind of running around, you know, making a living with, you know, in Iraq or in Jamaica, um, I had concerns. You know, I started making daughters and my wife had to take those daughters to work with her. And then she had to go back to the car, which was parked, you know, six blocks away off of Bourbon Street, you know, all the way down deep into the corner of the French Quarter, and mm. people were getting shocked. I mean, you know, I mean, the French Quarter is nothing to mess around with. I mean, you can you can turn down the wrong place, you know, and I guess you can do that anywhere in this day and age, but 10, 10 11 years ago, I mean, it was known that, you know, if you made the wrong turn, I mean, it might be your butt. Mm. So, uh, I had concerns, so I was never home, and my wife, you know, called me, you know, crying a couple times. Oh, my gosh, I got scared, and I saw a shooting uh, two blocks away, and you know, she's pushing my daughters around and stuff. I'm like, all right, well, that's it. You know, it's it's Colorado time. <laughs> okay. Um, now let me ask you, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but uh, for the for people that are listening, there's there was a guy I worked with, and I'm not going to mention his name, and I'm not even going to mention the company or the contract, but I will say it was in Afghanistan. And when me and another guy met him, we knew right away this guy was full of caca. Okay, why right. the okay? But one of the things he mentioned that, as near as we could tell, was a straight up lie engendered to instill some sort of mythological status on him. But he was claiming because I'd never heard this from anybody else, so I'm asking you. Uh, he claimed that the company he worked for got in that his team got into a shootout with Blackwater guys and that they won. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, excuse me. <laughs> I, okay, so what can? What do you want to say about that? <laughs> Did, however, you want to go with I mean, it. I, I mean, tactically, probably possible because, right? Maybe he had some numbers or something. Maybe it was an ambush. But <laughs> I mean, I've never, I, I never heard of such a, a, a funny story. Right? I, mean, I never. No, no. I mean, I, I've known Blackwater guys that went Oconus. You know, obviously, I worked with a bunch of. What we called Katrina babies. That was us. Okay. You know, the Blackwater Katrina crew. They called Katrina babies. So I still have a good network of Katrina babies, good network of Oconus guys, all Blackwater. And I have never heard of us being outshot by another company. So well, neither. Yeah, that sounds like a, 
Yeah, neither neither had I. And, and, you know, right. and of course, this guy was at that time uh, my boss, our boss. And so, you know, I could only call him out so many times before he and I got into a couple of ugly arguments. But that was one of them. And, I, and, and that's always been a head scratcher. I just wanted to throw that out. So for anybody who's listening, okay, you've heard it from the horse's mouth, Dave Williams, okay, who was there. Nobody successfully engaged Blackwater contractors in NOLA and got away with it. Okay. <laughs> So. You know, I guess Black, Blackwater did a couple bonehead things in Afghanistan. We had a couple shootings that, you know, there was some court stuff over and some villagers involved and all that. And I, I can't happens. speak intelligently on any of that. I wasn't there. But, um, but yeah, no, nobody walked around on the streets of New Orleans and beat us up. Yeah, oh. that, that was for sure. Okay. So, um, all right, we'll get off that. I just had – I'm sorry, man. I just – I don't know where that came out. It was in the back recesses of my mind. I just had to bring <laughs> – it just came out. EOD- no, no worries. I'm glad you asked. Okay. So EODT, um, a company that, um, you know, it's been asked. I don't know if they're still around. I surmise they are. But for a time, they were pretty uh, pretty hot there for a time. Um, they were one of the companies the guys wanted to work for. Uh, what was your yeah, yeah. What, what was your time like with them? Yeah, they were legit. I mean, they you know, they didn't just, you know. Hire you because you're a marine or something. You'd have to you'd have to get you'd have to fly into Fredericksburg, Virginia, and go through something called the Crucible, which is a private company out there. Uh, I'm sure a much much different than the Crucible that the Marines do at the end of their boot camp. Now, um, it's a shooting, fighting, running course, and for seven to ten days. I couldn't I can't remember exactly how long it was. I think it was seven days. Um, yeah, I mean you have to take a multiple PFTs. You have to be proficient with your Glock 19 and with, uh, you know, different M4s and AK-47s. And, you had, you know, you couldn't be a complete fairy on the mats. You had to <laughs> kind of know how to do a couple arm bars. <laughs> not everybody got out of there. Not everybody got out of the Crucible and went to Iraq. I think, uh, you know, I think it was probably about 70% went. Hmm. And, you know, the other 30% said bye-bye, go sell Lexuses. <laughs> right. Now, EODT was not the only company that did a pretty good job or even a good job. Of, of vetting. I mean, there was a time when companies needed the numbers for various reasons over the years, but still a fair number of them, and I think EODT was one of them, still uh, did their level best to vet and hold up a guy or a gal if they didn't think they were fit for duty. Uh, was that your experience? Yeah, absolutely. I got nothing but good to say about EODT. I know that when we got there, we we took over the contract for SOC, SMG, you know, Special Operations Command, and SOC is still running running rapid. I I don't know what they still have in the Middle East and hmm. Afghanistan and or Iraq, maybe Kuwait, but SOC still exists and they're still operating. EODT to answer your question from a couple minutes ago, don't quote me on this, but I think EODT changed to global. I think their new name is Global. Interesting. Okay. Lenore City, Tennessee, at the same address. So I think something must have happened that made them change a the name in the last couple of years to Global. Well, that could be because I, I will say that uh, during the time I was with them, uh, roughly the same time frame that you were, uh, they were they were just starting. They had a few, and I won't go into the reasons why because I don't really know why. We all hear stuff. Who knows? Right. Uh, but, but they were starting to have some difficulties. Um, let's just put it that way. 
And so that might have been because Global came around into existence about that same time frame. And I remember some friends that went to work for him. I think it was like 2010. Okay. Uh, so that could, that's interesting. So now you work in Iraq with the ODT, correct? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, can you tell people where you worked and what you did and, and anything else you want to go into? Yeah, absolutely. So after the crucible, we all, you know, got our kind of our flight dates based around EODT's needs and our life. So it was kind of a mathematical equation. I remember some people flew right out. Some people needed a week. Some people needed a month. Hmm. So when we got there, I, uh, I remember gathering in, at the biop there in Baghdad. And um, and then we would just, uh, ha- you know, kind of have a daily meetings and they would kind of figure out who's doing what and who's going where. Um, I got there in July 2009. Uh, I remember we had two sites that were substantial that we had to fill. One of them was Camp Adder and one of them was Camp Cedar. Yes. Um, okay. Yep. So yep. I, I ended up, I ended up going to Camp Cedar. I was on the smaller team. I think Adder had 30 or 40, 30 or 40 guys and, and then Cedar had like 10 or 12. I was one of the 10 or 12 that went over to Cedar. Okay. And that's how I met Greg Hesch. That's where I met him. <laughs> um, you know, what a great place to meet people, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Look, we're still we're still talking ten years later. Right? Uh isn't that amazing? Uh, so did you uh you know, we won't really go into the surrealism because sometimes, you know, uh there's a there's a there's a town or a city, whatever you want to call it, out there in that area that that's referenced in holy text, you know, whether it's the scriptures, Torah, whatever. And I remember uh, and I remember looking out there and at night you could kind of see the lights. Uh well we'll just say Nazaria. Okay. And I remember yep. going, Wow, really? Uh, and then you've got that for lack of a better term, that mosque that looks like a, a weird pyramid out there. Yeah, I think they call it Mecca. Mecca, right? Something like that, yeah. Um, and that kind of gave me goosebumps sometimes running around out there. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Absolutely. So, uh, anyway. Um, okay, so EODT, so you spent time with them in, in that area. And, and what was it like for you out there? I mean, uh, can you speak to that? You know, you, whether it's, you know, your experience with the guys in the military, the guys that you were on contract with, what you did, anything. Yeah, it was good. You know, anything, any experience like that when you're away from home, you tend to go back towards your, uh, you know, back to your roots, if you will. So, you know, we kind of, everybody that was, you know, I can only speak for the Camp Cedar guys, and and then I'll only speak to the guys, you know, about the guys that I kind of grouped around with, which was Greg Hesch and one or two other guys. You know, we kind of made it military. I mean, we we woke up at 5 a.m., we went to the MWR and did P90X and, you know, in insanity in and lifted weights mm. uh, for a couple of hours before we had to form up with the Ugandans and give them their mission of the day and then take them out to the ECPs and the, and the towers and the QRF teams. So, you know, I, we did that five or six days a week, you know, some of us, and then, you know, some other guys smoke three packs of cigarettes and drink nine monsters. You know? <laughs> Right. <laughs> oh, oh man! <laughs> and you never saw him in the gym either. <laughs> no, you never saw him in the gym. Yeah, you never saw him in the gym. We have one or two guys who work out so they can drink one or two. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. Uh, 
So you know, you mentioned Ugandans a couple of times, and and, I, and the reason I'm, I'm I'm going with this is because it was asked to me some years ago when I put on something at a middle school for one of my children. Uh, they had a I don't remember what it was, and I did a security thing for them in the classroom, and and all day people were coming through. But they asked me why are there so many why are there so many black people there, you know? And I thought I said, well, because we had Ugandans and Sierra Leones, and. Uh, you know, and there were others, you know, Indians and, you know, Sri Lankans and, and you know, Gurkhas. I mean, you, you go down the list, they were, everybody was out there. But they were asking that question, why so many? And I said, well, I don't know, but there were, <laughs> you know. Yep. Um, but uh, can you hearken to your experiences? Because it goes both ways. I've heard both sides of the argument. Uh, what were your experiences working with EODT or anybody else? Uh, with the Ugandans and the Sierra Leones or anybody else? Yeah, yeah, no problem. Um, the EODT gave us, you know, full reign, you know, as long as we were, you know, not being cruel and unusually punishable, you know, and, you know, just <laughs> treat these guys with respect, you know, supervise them, teach them what you know, you know, nurture them. And so I, I kind of did just that. I, uh, I admired the Ugandans' uh, toughness. They're the kind of guys that can – sleep on the floor on an isomat for three days with no blanket and, you know, need very little food and water. They're, they're tough people. They're not very proficient with weapons and or fighting systems. So for lack of a better word, they were tough and goofy. Right. Um, you know, you put an AK-47 in their hands and they can't hit a paper target at 25 meters. Right. So, so we had a lot to do. We had, a, you know, we had to teach them basic marksmanship. You know, especially, you know, slow trigger squeezes and the breathing and the whole nine yards. And then, of course, we'd threaten to fly them back to Kampala upon failure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, uh, okay. So I'm guessing your experiences were similar to mine with with all those folks is that um, you had both professionals and non-professionals. And as time went on, it seemed like there were le fewer professionals. But if you treated them properly and 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 you did your job in a professional manner you you got pretty good mileage out of these guys and they caught on quick and at the end of the day after a month or two months of training you could be proud of what you were working with correct yeah yeah no that that's all correct that's absolutely and I, i'll even take that a step further you know during my off time you know i had a wife and no kids at this time and you know skype was real sketchy out there just sometimes it worked sometimes it didn't Right. I gave these guys that were interested, the Ugandans that I knew kind of wanted to move to the next level in protection. Uh, I have a martial arts background, you know, not, nothing, nothing eighth degree black belt ish, but certainly enough to take some Ugandans and teach them how to keep their elbows in tight, chin down and, and get some R bars going and throw some straight punches. So I would invite these guys to come to my chew after hours and learn how to fight. I, I always thought it was only going to be one or two, but sometimes I'd have a line of 20 Ugandans. Wow. Wow. They were definitely eager to learn the American way. You know, at least, you know, I can speak for, for the, for the you know, th three or 400 that were down in, in my neck of the woods. Okay. So, you know, I think your, what you're saying, your experiences are similar to other guys that don't just, for whatever reason, they have a really bad attitude toward toward those guys. It's like, right. you know, it. they were a sponge willing to soak up everything you threw at them if they felt that you knew what you were talking about. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, you you gotta you gotta you know gotta gotta gain respect, of course, to any people, right? I mean, yes. Americans, Ugandans, you gotta you gotta let them know. Look, I'm gonna teach you this, you know, and you're gonna trust me in teaching you this, and this is why because I'm proficient at it. I mean, <laughs> here, go ahead and throw a punch. And, you know, <laughs> then you, you put them on their back or something and say, okay, so you, you now do you want two of them? Get your bullets guy. <laughs> come over here. Okay, so now do we have an understanding of how this works? Okay, and I'm you know. And then, so, you know, so you have to, you have to earn that respect. You can't yes. just slap your gums, you know, you got to kind of show them something. Yes, absolutely. Um, but now, so I, I, you know, and, and I understand why guys have both negative and positive to say about Ugandans and Sierra Leones and whatever, but, you know, it's, it was a thankless job out there for them. And, you know, right. they, um, I mean, let's be honest, uh, you know, for the most part, the guys walking the grounds, whether it was inside or outside the perimeter, the towers, what have you, if you weren't, um, say, a supervisor at least, I mean, they just viewed you as just another knuckle dragger and, and you were expendable. So I, I kind of get – plus they didn't get paid as much, but I tried to explain to them, and I'm sure you did, but your cost of living – is considerably less than mine. Right. But now, was that an issue for you that you experienced? I don't think it was an issue, but it was certainly a conversation. I remember speaking to some of the village guys about it, and when I found out they were making 100 bucks a day or whatever it was, I was like, okay, well, you know, how much does a house cost to build in Kampala? Oh, 10 grand. Okay, yeah, that's well, right. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I, right. I still remember them saying, hey, Scott, you know, come over to our country and for fifty thousand dollars, you can build a mansion and you can live like a king. And trying right. to get me to go over there for you know to check out their diamond and gold operation, they wanted me to invest in that, and, you know. And I'm going, wow. And they're saying, seriously, if you come down there, Scott, with a hundred thousand, and they always said, Mister Scott, most of them, not all of them, but a hundred thousand, fifty thousand buys you, you know, a mansion. And and they went into great detail what a mansion was. And they said, and you can live the rest of your life on the other fifty thousand. And I was oh like, my gosh. well, that's what they're saying. I don't know. Who knows if it's true or not? I don't know. Right. But it was tempting. But what I'm saying is that these guys were, they were great people. You, you're right. They, you had to earn their respect. And if you got it, man, these guys, and I, the, yeah, I'm just going to say, they, they, they could be top-notch people. They could be. They just, you needed to show them. But, uh, so we'll get off that. Now, you work for TOW Jamaica. Um, now what was that for and, uh, what was, and what did that involve? So that was the big money guy that I came down here in Colorado and protected in 2006. Uh, he emailed me while I was on my 30 day break from Iraq and, um, and basically said, you know, how much are you making in Iraq? You know, and I, you know, casually told him a yeah, hundred grand for the year. How'd you like to make 110 tax free in Jamaica? Hmm. Uh, and I'll fly you home every two months. Okay, what's the job entail? All right, well, first, I'm, I want you to go to the island, you know, uh, and get to Kingston and basically secure the following. You know, we need housing. We need a driver. We need the whole nine yards. Make it safe. Uh, apply for a weapons, uh, you know, license and that kind of thing. And then we're going to bring these two CEOs down. And I want you to protect those guys. And ultimately, we're, you're going to have a huge uh, distribution center in Spanish town, which is the old capital of Jamaica, right next to Kingston. So another shithole. And, uh, 
can I say that? <laughs> Too late, you said it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and yeah, and then so my third job was the hardest job, which I didn't know at the time, was to supervise a Jamaican security team. Hmm. So um, I did everything I was supposed to do. Did a good recon, got on the island, found a good driver, found a good uh, place to live, got a house in Portmore which is uh, kind of right outside Spanish town, but in a good little area and right on the beach Got a five bed, four bath with the waves hitting the front door. And, uh, so we were all set up, uh, got the two CEOs explained to them wh- why I was there. You know, I'm not here to go to nightclubs with you and get stabbed in Kingston. So mm. I'm here to protect you to and from the work, protect you while you're in your homestead. And, you know, and you're kind of on your own if you're one of those guys that likes to drink and go out to nightclubs and stuff. That's not why I'm hired. So I'm hired to keep you safe while you're doing normal activities in Jamaica here. Hmm. They all understood that, you know, they weren't going to tear me out and have me going, you know, in any kind of uh, super dangerous situations. Uh, it took me a long time to get a weapons license in Jamaica. So I don't know if that's because I had an active security clearance through EODT or if they're just slow over there, but, we were supposed to be in Jamaica three years, ended up uh, being there 15 months, and it took me like 10 months to get a weapons license. So wow. For 10 months, I had to use bluff techniques. You know, <laughs> I just, you know, I would always get out of the car and index and posture like I was touching my gun to make sure it was still there. And huh. I did all kinds of stuff like that and stay away from, you know, tight little, you know, dark spaces. And, you know, and we made it work. Uh, I was able to successfully protect those guys with no weapon for 10 months. Wow. Now, that's a testament. That says a lot more than I can say uh, when you can carry that off for that length of time. That's that's pretty amazing. Um, you know, yeah, I can't take all the credit. It was just kind of some thinking, some mapping. You know, I, you know, I talked to the driver extensively, really dug into him and made sure he wasn't sketchy and he wasn't going to bring any sketch to us. <laughs> and he was to pick us up at, you know, 0700. And, you know, he was to pick us up, you know, from work at 1800 and get us right back to the house. No ifs, ands, or buts. No guests, no friends. Yeah. I don't meet your Jamaican cousins. None of that shit. <laughs> right. Uh <laughs> So now that's uh, now that was now that was uh, what was the time frame on that one? That was two, uh, January two thousand and ten to April two thousand eleven. Yeah, right before I started counter piracy, I connected. Okay. To counter piracy, so beginning of eleven. Okay. So now, without without a, without you know embarrassing yourself or saying anything, how did that compare? coming out of the sandbox into that. Wow, yeah, dynamic change. I mean, going from 140 degrees, you know, and, and you know, and, and, and seeing nothing to being in almost a tropical paradise. If, you know, had I been in the grill or Montego Bay, I was just on the wrong side of the island. <laughs> but, you know, still green and humid and tropical, and I was getting my my food every day from a, a guy, you know, a guy who would had a fruit stand right outside our house, and I'd go score some mangoes and, and pineapples and, you know, just, uh, yeah, way different than Iraq, you know, way more freedom. Okay. So more freedom and, uh, uh, what do we say? The logistics was, was a lot better. Logistics was better. Quality of life better. You know, I was flying home to New Orleans to see my wife and, you know, my, my pregnant wife Mm. for, for a week, every two months. That was all paid for by 
by Big Money Man. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it was, it was certainly a lot, you know, it made everybody feel a lot better than I was in Jamaica than, than Iraq, even though we weren't without our dramas. Uh, I don't know if you remember, and you probably don't, most people don't, but 2010 was the year that Dudas Coke, that huge drug dealer, was in Jamaica, dressed as a woman, and was hiding from every department known to man. He was pushing huge amounts of drugs in the United States. They finally got the right paperwork and to go get him. So it was like an American-Jamaican dual partnership in, in extracting this guy. He was, he, he was very, very close to where our warehouse was, dressed as a woman, heavily armed, and they were basically roadblocking most of the island, and we had to really watch our stuff. I mean, I remember locking ourselves down in our Portmore house for four or five days till we got confirmation that Dudas Coke was extracted. Huh. You're right. A, I don't remember that, but B, that's amazing. I mean, now, were you with or without your weapon at that point? <clears throat> I was without. <laughs> <clears throat> that's got to be... to admit that. <laughs> well, I'm just... Yeah, and I asked that because... Um, um, I've talked to <clears throat> a number of guys, but only one guy is actually willing to admit that he, there were times occasionally when he operated without a weapon. And I tell you what, uh, I, I can't imagine. Well, as you traveled overseas, you, you, op, you know, back and forth, you, op, you know, you oftentimes didn't have your weapon. But I can't imagine working, working a protection detail or any sort of security job without a weapon. Uh, that must have been, that must have been, uh, uh, how was it for you? I mean, what did you think? I mean, you, you obviously took it in stride. You stayed there for 10 months before you got it. Yeah, I think, I think with, in a situation like that, you know, you don't overreact. Um, I mean, it was the same thing in counter piracy, which will be the next thing after Jamaica. I mean, there was a couple times where, you know, the, the Navy for uh, the Ivory Coast came and confiscated our weapons while we were within 12 nautical miles of, of anchor, you know, of their hmm. land, they would come and they would take our weapons and then we'd have to make a decision. Are we going to fly home, you know, uh, or are we going to make this run to Nigeria without weapons? And, huh. you know, so, but to get back into Jamaica, um, I wasn't thrilled. I wasn't super happy with it, but I knew that it was going to happen. You know, I just could see the slowness in the progressions of what's going on. So I had to really make a good, recon and have a be a really good communicator with the the ceo guys and the driver and make sure that everybody was on board to stay safe and to promise them that i wouldn't be able to protect them properly if something ugly happened and so something ugly could happen but something ugly was certain to happen if they had a propensity to you know smoke up a bunch of drugs drink and play in the wrong places you know (laughs) so now that okay so now did the were the locals armed? Did you have people as part of your security detail or part of the entourage? Were they armed? So the guys that I hired um, were not armed. Uh, I remember having it. They had some sec. I think they had a secondary weapon, some kind of a PR twenty four ASP type thing. But I don't remember pepper spray, and I certainly don't remember a firearm on them. So no, they weren't armed either. Interesting. Okay, so that's that's something that's worth noting because. It's been said not very often, in fact, only twice now, um, that there are times when, for whatever reason, you're not armed. 
And what are you going to do about it now that you realize you're not armed? Um, so for the people that are listening that might be thinking about this, you've heard it twice. There's times when you're not armed, so you better be ready. Um, now, you, so you said your weapons were confiscated by the Navy, the U.S. Navy? No, not the U.S. Navy. So the African navies of the countries we were constantly in. So it would just be, uh, you know, we'd be at the wrong place at the wrong time and the wrong you know, Liberian Navy crew just didn't agree with our process to have weapons, and they would take them and cut them in half. Huh. There was other times where our voyage was finished, and a lot of people probably know this, but some of these countries don't accept weapons and don't have armories. So now you're taking apart the upper receiver, low receiver, lower receiver and bolt housing group, and you are literally dropping them in the Indian Ocean taking pictures of everything, reporting it to your boss, and he is going to equip you with a new kit, uh, you know, when you fly out of, let's say, Durban, you know, Durban, South Africa, and you're going to fly back to Muscat, Oman, or Monrovia, Liberia. He'll have a new kit waiting for you. But we just threw five grand worth of machinery into the Indian Ocean. Wow. Okay. Into the country. So international laws, when you work at anti-piracy, for those that don't realize it, there are probably a lot more ports than there aren't where you can't have weapons if you go into that port. Is that correct? That is correct. And furthermore, you know, most of the ships aren't cooperative with holding those weapons. So usually huh. what happens is plan Bravo. You're breaking them down and throwing them in the Indian Ocean. Wow. Okay. <laughs> now, I've yeah. often wondered... And I'm and I'm sure we're not going to change anything, but it's like, why? I mean, if these shipping companies have hired us, they obviously understand the inherent risks. Why do they not pressure their governments into, we're on the ship, just let us stay on the ship with our weapons? I don't get it, but okay. Um, right. Was there, ever, was there ever anything that, uh, was explained to you, expressed to you, or is that just the way it is? No, I mean, there's a couple of times where, you know, I don't want to, <laughs> again, I won't say names, but a couple, uh, couple of times the captains would be pretty favorable with taking our kits, knowing they're in a country that doesn't accept the weapons and hiding said kit in their deep, deep into a safe somewhere. And we don't have to throw the weapons away. Okay. All right. So, uh, so there are, for lack of a better term, there are some cool captains out there. Cool captains. You know, like the <laughs> Russian ones who, the Russian captain that I was with, he didn't care about, he didn't even know what rules of engagement were. He, you know, he, he was like, who's team leader? I was like, me, come here. He's like, you'll see pirates, you shoot, we sink <laughs> ship, we keep going. We don't call UKMTO. I was like, oh, oh, you know, UKMTO is the governing body of maritime. It's out of the UK, out of England, of course. And, uh, you know, any anything like that, any kind of pirate activity, any kind of shooting engagements are supposed to be reported to UKMTO. The Russian captain made me promise that we were going to kill all the pirates, sink <laughs> the ship, and just keep on going to Sri Lanka. <laughs> Things are different in Russia then, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. But okay. you, know, you just have a little bit of everything. You had to be ready for any of that. Right. Wow. Okay. So... I think you said, and correct me if I'm wrong, earlier you said that probably 
and correct me if I get the terminology wrong, the funnest or the or your the job that you enjoyed the most was your maritime security job. Is that correct? By far and away, it okay. was the uh, it was it was unbelievable because of the flexibilities and the schedule and the money and just okay. the treatment of you being a you know an operative for a, for a shipping company. Okay. Okay. So. Um, for those people that are listening that are thinking about maybe the guys that haven't been either on land or at sea in a private security role outside the continental U.S. or overseas if they're coming from, uh, say, the U.K. or Europe somewhere, but they're thinking about it, uh, what, what, sorts of, what sort of advice would you give them to consider prior to jumping into this? What, what would you say? These are the things you should consider. This is what you should have as a skill set, anything. Yeah, so first and foremost, you know, not an absolute expert in all weapon systems, but you, you'll need to know how to, to touch a weapon and operate it properly. You don't really know what you're going to get. It's not always a, you know, it's not always a Bushmaster M4. You know, sometimes it's a fixed buttstock M16A2. Sometimes it's an old beat-up AK-47, a bolt action 308. Russian stuff. Uh, hell, we had a Barrett one time, 50 cal. Uh, you know, you just never know what you're going to get in the big, the big Pelican case. So, wow. be versatile and know how to touch, you know, some weapons. And then, obviously, you you want to, you know, if you don't, if you've never shot from an, a ship that you know slightly rocks left and right, and try to measure the trajectory of you know where your round's going at that angle, uh, you'd probably want to practice that a little bit. Um, your pallet, unless you're planning on bringing, you know, lots of pounds of, of American food or and or protein and stuff, you'll need to have a, you know, a kind of a pallet that, you know, hasn't kept you in the same state your whole life. Mm. Uh, <laughs> you know, something where you can kind of bounce around and eat Russian cuisine, Philippine cuisine, Chinese, but not like the Chinese restaurants you find here, like real Chinese, you know, with the dog and everything. Okay. So you've got to be able to, as we say in the Marine Corps, adapt, improvise, and overcome. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the, the whole thing is a little shady for, you know, for somebody who hasn't done that because you're flying into these airports and sometimes you have a driver, sometimes you don't. If you do have a driver, he's holding up a sign. It's probably in Arabic. You're not going to be able to read your name. <laughs> you know, there's your name right there in Arabic, but you're not going to be able to read it. He can read it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the whole thing is just, you know, it's just it's a shit show, really. You know, you, you got your team together. The most important thing is to make sure that you guys are all squared away on the same page. You know, make sure you talk to your team on the airplane. You know, uh, if you're not the team leader, then you're going to learn about the expectation of the team leader. And, uh, yeah, you guys are going to kind of make a kind of a kind of a plan. That plan will flex. You know, you think you're going to get right on the ship and you may be sitting at the Golden Tulip in Muscat, Oman for two and a half weeks because the ship just got anchored and is not allowed in port because there's too much ship traffic or the ship has something that the inspectors didn't like. So they're going to just going to anchor them out for a while. So you're going to sit in that hotel for a while eating hummus and waiting. <laughs> so not only do you got to have a great amount of patience. You got to learn to be able to just rock and roll and go with the flow. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. Yeah, it's never the same day twice, really, which is, I think, one of the reasons why I liked it so much. You just never knew if, you know, you're going to be stuck in a hotel or if you were going to shoot warning shots at pirates. You know? <laughs> right. 
I mean, well, I, you know, and not everybody can handle that. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people like to think they can, but, you know, was it? somebody said to me one time, uh, and I think it was, oddly enough, at the EODT Crucible, as we were nearing the end of it, and we were told where we were going, and when somebody said, said, and I think they, I, I thought they were saying it to me, but who knows, something about, oh, so now you understand it's getting real. And I'm looking around, I'm going, and I realized that person was talking to me. I said, oh, I, I know it's real. I said, but I was thinking about something different. It doesn't matter. But I'm just, but a lot of people don't realize what they're really getting themselves into if they haven't been in that situation before or until they get there. And uh, and I think that's kind of what you were hearkening on and what, and what I was trying to get at is that they need to understand what they're getting into if they haven't been there before. If you've been there before, you're probably you're probably going to be okay, but you said it's different being out there on the sea. Aside from being tossed around and getting seasick, the culture is different. The lifestyle is different. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Just even the living conditions. You know, sometimes you're all shacked up in the same room. Sometimes if you know if you're lucky, you'll each have your own room. Sometimes the team leader will just have his room, and the other two or three guys will be in a room, and. uh yeah, you know, the 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 showers are tight, the toilets are tight. Uh you know, there's water discipline, you know, that they, they they have tanks of water, so, you know, they don't want you running the water all day. So, there's just, you know, different things you have to learn and respect from the captain as he gives you those rules when you get on his ship because he is he's the king. Okay. So, would you say a good motto to live by in terms of shower and water discipline is combat shower, 5-minute shower and that's it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Even, you know, less if you can get away with it. Yeah. Right, you know. okay. And water is, you need it, and you're going to be sleeping and doing your business uh, around it amongst other people that hopefully you'll get to know and like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's certainly a possibility, you know, and, you know, unless you had your own room, which is, you know, I would say I, I did 25 runs and had my own room, you know, five or six times. Wow. Okay, okay. So uh, as we wrap this up, uh, Dave, is there a takeaway or something you would like to leave the listeners with that we haven't covered down on? Something you'd like them to remember? Yeah, uh, you know, and I'm thinking most of the most of the people here who um, who are listening to this are all former military Leo guys. Uh, you got to you know you got to take my stories and, and the things that I said with a grain of salt because you know I was operating hard and heavy from uh, 2005 to, you know, 2014, and uh, things have changed. You know, so I've been out of the box now five or six years. I'm currently a tactical instructor for Triple Canopy for a hmm. Department of Homeland Security contract here. So I haven't really uh, strayed far from the uh, field. I just don't travel anymore. My my traveling is now driving to different posts in the state of Colorado and squaring away PSOs in NWDTP, which is National Weapon Detection Training Program. So how to detect weapons and what to do when you detect them, that kind of thing. Hmm. Okay. So you're liking what you're doing? Absolutely. You know, it's not it's not 150k anymore. It's not it's not glamorous, uh, but it's uh, it affords me a good life in Evergreen, Colorado. My kids are in top-notch schools. The wife's happy, and uh, you know, as I talk to you guys, I'm looking up. I'm standing on my balcony looking at Mount Evans, which is a you know a fourteen thousand three hundred and fifty foot mountain, and I see a hmm. mountain beer stat right next to it. So I have views of the Rocky Mountains 
all 360 around my house. Wow. And and I'm going to guess, and correct me if I'm wrong, where you're at now and what you're enjoying probably could not have occurred had you not gone through and done what you've done since 2005. Would that be a fair assessment? It would be an absolute certainty of what you said. There, there's never been more factual words to ever come out of a human's mouth. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I made some, some good coin during those times. I was telling Scott earlier, I don't have any real bad habits, you know, no, no drinking or tobacco use or anything like that. So I was able to save the majority of my money and yeah. And, uh, and you can, you know, anybody who's listening to that can do that. Like I was saying at the beginning of this program, uh, I, you know, I didn't come from a big dynamic background. I was, uh, attached to a recon unit in the Marines during peacetime and just had to kind of scratch and claw my way up. And I did that through, uh, you know, through the ways that most people in any business would do that. And that is coming on time and being squared away and keeping physically fit, keeping my mouth shut and working out on my off time and, 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 you know, and studying what I'm doing. Okay. We're going to train the Ugandans in this. Let me make sure they're going to be proficient in this. Boom, boom. And just kind of always working on my craft or whatever I'm doing. And so I've always taken my job seriously and, you know, it's afforded me some luxuries in life. I, absolutely. You know, without hardship. I mean, certainly hardship is always a part of everything. You got to work. So. Excellent. Uh, well stated. Um, so there, there, this is a perfect example for everybody who's listening uh, of what to do, how to do it, and just earn your stripes and uh, stay modest um, and humble, and you should do fine. So, Dave Williams, I got to say, man, absolute pleasure uh, talking with you uh, on this episode. Uh, thank you again for coming on, and please stick around uh, as soon as we're done here. Uh, for the folks that are listening, I want to thank you for tuning into this uh, episode of Aconis, the Contractor's Life. And I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I have. Stay frosty, stay safe. Remember to be careful what you wish for. And until next time, keep it real.